All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Well, hello and welcome to that actual Anarchy Podcast podcast. We talk about those movies from that anarcho capitalist perspective with the Rothbardian tint to it. I think that's uh, the new slogan. It's really catchy. What do you think? Is that going on a bumper sticker available at trepster.com, Robert? Well, if it was taint instead of tint, I think you could definitely do that. Oh, so you're always going to one up me to make it just that much better. You are the creative genius behind the outfit here. So. Hey, we're going to be talking about a movie, uh, Captain Phillips, tonight. And this is a Valentine's Day special. We have a special guest. He was on recently, and he was uh, on not so recently. So this will be his third appearance, and we'll introduce him on the last night's portion of the show. But I want to check in with Robert. I know oh. that your uh, your entrepreneurial effort is a bit on hold right now, a bit of a pause. So you might need to look into piracy yourself. Mm. Uh, talk about Captain Phillips. And um, you can either be a fisherman or you can ransom ships, apparently. Uh what what uh, is your hiatus? How long is it going to be? Another week or two? And then are you going to do like a blowout extravaganza sale promotion kind of thing to get the customers' butts back in those seats? Well, no, none of that stuff. We were going to, I mean, I like this piracy idea. This is a really good idea. Um, but no, I we were coming back in six days and we've implemented some new features to the business, which will hopefully help it run smoother. And then we're going to be hiring some new staff, which we interviewed yesterday some really promising candidates and we are going to hopefully be moving to a five day a week schedule. We're just working out all the details. We still need a location in OMAC, which might be, we might be purchasing a brick and mortar restaurant. Now we've always been for the most into this idea, but in OMAC is, it's probably the biggest commercial center in the County. No, it's not probably, it definitely is. So it's the only place. Well, one of the only places that could actually sustain a long-term restaurant but also serve as a hub for our food trucks to go out of to service the rest of the county. So it'll be like a hub slash restaurant, basically just like a headquarters, like a like a G.I. Joe secret base. Not like, well, it could be like Cobra, but it's not going to be in a swamp. You know, it'll just be like a headquarters where we do our nefarious, evil, capitalistic deeds. So this is going to be like the underground sewer layer of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or perhaps the Justice League floating space station. Something Speaking like of sewer, um, the basement of the place we looked at is enormous. You could easily have a whole Ninja Turtle group, clan, if you will, with a mutant rat teaching them and then still run a restaurant um, out of it. So we're really excited for both the genetic engineering technology to advance to the point where we can do that and also to run a restaurant. So we're excited. All right. Well, while this is a fascinating discussion, and I'm sure we could go on for hours, I think we should get in last night's portion of the show and not hold back our guest any longer. So, you know, everything's going to burst. Everything's going to be okay. It's going to explode. All right. Here we go.
everyone, it's Daniel Elwood and Robert Johnson, and we are The Last Nighters, and The Last Nighters can be found on the Launchpad Media, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. Check it out at thelaunchpadmedia.com. This is the 111th or 111th episode of the show. I'm borrowing a little Lord of the Rings Hobbit speak for this one, even though it's totally unrelated, as we're going to be talking about Captain Phillips tonight. Piracy on the high seas over the uh, Horn of Africa should be a fun one, and we have a fun guest coming back. He was on most recently for the Matthew McConaughey film Gold, and part of that, he was talking about the Breaking Bad movie El Camino. He is, of course, Jared Wall of Breaking Liberty. Welcome back to the show, Jared. Why don't you remind everyone what your projects are and uh, how they can find you, and then we'll uh, get this thing rolling. Uh, Yeah, thank you. Good to be back. Um, Nice to talk to both of you again. Uh, As you alluded to, I'm a big big fan of the Breaking Bad TV uh, TV show actually wrote a, a couple of um, small ebooks about that, which are available for free at breakingliberty.com. Those, those ebooks are titled Breaking Liberty, Libertarian Commentary on AMC's hit show. Um, had a lot of fun writing them and had a lot of fun talking to you guys about El Camino. And I am uh, excited to speak to you guys about or speak with you guys about Captain Phillips. All right, and we are excited to have you back because there are special reasons why you wanted to be on for this one, uh, and and we'll reveal those as we go along here. But this is a Valentine's Day episode for us, and how it relates to Captain Phillips is part of the expertise that you're going to bring here in that your wife is uh, from that region of the world, and so you have a, a specific keen interest in it and some firsthand knowledge or even secondhand knowledge, and a lot more than... Uh, two dumb guys who talk about movies are, are going to know about. So I appreciate you being on for that. I also appreciate you for one other thing. During our last episode, I think during the bonus content, which is available for our Patreon supporters, we mentioned that you are now our newest Patreon person. So if anyone else wants to hop on the Patreon wagon, just like Jared did, go over to lastnighters.com slash Patreon, and you'll get some goodies from us. Um, you know, not the normal goodies of us talking about movies, which is kind of cool sometimes, occasionally, and unassailably cool sometimes and occasionally. But uh, check it out. And Jared, thank you for, for being a friend. Thank you for being our Patreon supporter. Absolutely. I think uh, more people should. You guys do uh, some fun stuff. You know, there's a lot of libertarian podcasts out there and yours is pretty unique. Um, and uh, you should definitely keep doing what you're doing. And uh, it would be a lot easier for you guys to do that if people helped you out. You know, even if it's just a couple bucks, it doesn't, uh, doesn't hurt. And, uh, you know, like I said, you guys are, uh, your show is great. I enjoy listening to it, even when I'm not on it. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, I, uh, you know, we just want to keep you, see you guys keep going and see you guys succeed. Well, thank you for that. I, I wasn't intending to turn this into a telethon. Um, but, uh, that's great. Um, we do appreciate the kind words and the motivation for others to join us and help out. And, uh, why don't we get into this movie? We usually start off with the Google description. I'll go to Robert for your initial reactions. This is, of course, Captain Phillips. It came out in 2013 uh, based on events that occurred in 2009. It's PG-13 thriller slash drama. Two hours and 14 minutes on that IMDb. Uh, I got 7.8 on the Richter scale, 93% Rod Tomatoes, 83% Metacritic, and 94% of Google users gave it a thumbs up, Commodus style. Uh, in April 2009, the U.S. container ship Maersk, Alabama, sails towards its destination on a day that seems like any other. Suddenly, Somali pirates race toward the vessel, climb aboard, and take everyone hostage. The captain of the ship, Richard Phillips, played by Tom Hanks, looks to protect his crew from the hostile invaders and their leader, Musay, played by Barkad Abdi, which I'm not saying his name correctly, 
the pirates are after millions of dollars, and Phillips must use his wits to make sure everyone survives and returns home safely. It came out October 11th, 2013. Director Paul Greengrass, he did a couple of the Bourne movies. Box office of $218.8 million US dollars. And against a budget, I think, of about 45 or $55 million. So uh, all said and done, they did fairly well. And it was nominated for all sorts of awards. Didn't win very many. But uh, Barkhad Abdi did win Best Supporting Actor uh, Academy Award. Robert, your take on the mm. script and your opening salvo, sir. Oh, okay. Well, they call this an action thriller or a, some kind of a thriller drama. And boy, what a thriller this is. Um, I, I, I remember this story from the news, but, you know, just like a little blurb here and there. It didn't make super big headlines, but. I guess since it was all resolved fairly quickly that it wasn't the biggest, you know, drama. But when the film, man, I, I saw this after I saw The Last Jedi. And that's what the movie immediately came to my mind when I watched it. I was like, this is a kind of a slow motion chase movie. I like The Last Jedi, but just done right with like tension, drama. Whereas the, you know, the, the chase scene in The Last Jedi was just this slow motion thing that was just not happening. But this thing was like, Every little bit. And of course, it's all exacerbated by stupidity and poor service. But we can get into all those issues. Like I, I don't for the life of me, I don't understand why there aren't like a couple of guns on the boat. Like two guys with AR-15s could have held that boat with ease against a couple of pirate skiffs. But I digress. Like even even like two nine millimeters uh, you set yourself up on either end of where they put that ladder and they're coming up and they're vulnerable anyway whatever uh it's a good film great film i hope you guys enjoyed it as much as i did i watched it a second time uh, the other day and was just as enthralled the entire time as i was the first time i saw it so um yeah uh, and there's all kinds of issues in terms of the the pirates and how they feel like this is their only option like there's just no economic activity so they're like having to bribe these pirate skiff captains to even take them on these life and death missions to, you know, go rob these places. Um, the, uh, what the tiny little percentage of the money they're getting on the stolen goods, like the musee, he says he got like some million dollar boat or multi-million dollar boat, Greek boat, like the previous year. So, but he's still out there like with nothing. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff. And then, of course, the terrible service by the um, U.S. Maritime Agency that doesn't answer the phone. And then finally, the Navy gets involved, like after he's been kidnapped. All kinds of stuff that we could talk about. So it'll be a fun discussion. Hope you guys uh, enjoy it. All right. And I, I tend to agree with you. This is a very exciting movie. However, um, it's one of those deals where I saw the trailer. and I was like, holy shit, this looks awesome. And then you watch it and you're like, oh, OK, they totally cut together some stuff to make it even have more tension in the trailers than the actual movie did. Though it did do a uh, much better job than Last Jedi did. Like you were saying, it's slow moving, kind of chasing, but at least they break it off in this one. And then they uh, regroup the next day and they've, due to a power struggle between Musei and the other guy who was running the other skiff, uh, that ended pretty uh, violently. Now he's got two outboard motors on his next attempt. So the mares can't, uh, the, the Alabama can't get away from them at that point. But uh, Jared, let's go to you for your reaction to the Google description information and uh, how Robert opened up. Yeah, all good stuff. Um, I agree. I, I really enjoyed the movie. I really enjoyed Tom Hanks's acting. I, I, uh, it's another. It's almost kind of along the lines of Castaway, where he's really, uh, really carries the movie almost by himself. Um, and he's one of the few actors I think that is capable of doing that. 
uh, in addition to you know all of the things that Robert talked about as far as you know libertarian ideas that we can talk about, I definitely am looking forward to talking about you know why Somalia is so poor and why uh, you know they have to resort to piracy um, and why they have to bribe the skiff captain just to get have a chance to be on his boat uh, at, you know for the chance of making a little bit of money. Um, and, uh, you know, as far as the, the not having guns to defend themselves, that's going to be an interesting one to get into. Uh, and you know, the U S Navy's, uh, uh, security that they're quote unquote supposed to be providing in that part of the, you know, in those international waters. Uh, but mostly, I mean, I'm, I'm particularly excited about talking about the, you know, the history of Somalia and the U S intervention in that country that has made it so, uh, you know, just unable to develop and um, has really set them in this perpetual cycle of poverty. Uh, you know, you kind of mentioned um, my my wife is from neighboring Kenya. If anybody kind of knows this region of the world, some there's the Horn of Africa that sticks out into the Indian Ocean. Somalia basically makes up the Horn. It's kind of shaped like a seven. Uh, and then Kenya is to the south and west of Somalia. And so, um, you know, so Al-Shabaab, which is kind of the terrorist organization, quote unquote, terrorist organization that operates in Somalia nowadays has done routine kind of blowback attacks into Kenya. Kenya is backed by the U.S. to do a lot of military event- military intervention into Somalia. And so there's been a lot of Al-Shabaab attacks in Kenya. And every time that happens, you know, my, my family and friends call me, hey, is, is, uh, is your wife, uh, you know, is her family okay? or her friends okay? And fortunately, so far, um, you know, nobody that we know has been directly affected by those attacks. But, uh, you know, it's, it's a part of the world that has become close to my heart. And it, my, my wife has friends that are Somali uh, that I've had long conversations with about what's going on in their country. And it's really sad. Um, and I think that's something a lot people who watch this movie might not know a lot of this history and might just watch it and think, boy, these Somalis are crazy. Why, why can't, why are they so poor? Why do they have to, you know, be so violent and that kind of thing. And, uh, there's, there's reasons why. And the reasons are that the U S just can't keep their hands to themselves. All right. Well, well said. And, and I don't know a whole lot about it, um, relative to what I'm sure you're familiar with. But uh, just from that region, I did have a roommate in college who is from Eritrea, which was going through a civil war with Ethiopia. And his father actually died in it. He was a refugee coming to the United States. And there's a whole pot, there's whole groups of um, Eritreans and Ethiopians in the U.S. in different uh, areas, like Philadelphia was where he first moved to, and then he moved to the Seattle area. And I guess they kind of formed communities in certain regions. And I understand that there's a lot of Somalians in uh, Minnesota, Minneapolis. And in fact, that's where they did a casting call and found the four lead actors of the Somalian, um, skiff. And, uh, so it's just kind of an interesting thing that there's a lot of destabilization going on. And then there's refugees as a result. And then I guess, I'm not sure exactly what the mechanisms are to where they come to the United States, but it does seem like they're sponsored in some way, perhaps governmentally. I don't really know. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's a lot of innocent people trying to get out of a difficult and challenging situation. Uh, and you know, if you're, like you said, if, if, if the United States didn't intervene in those areas, causing a lot of these problems, then you wouldn't have the refugee crisis and you wouldn't have the blowback that results from meddling in others affairs. So 
you know, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a difficult situation. Now there's another side of it that I just want to bring up. And that is that relative to the other countries nearby, Somalia actually wasn't that bad uh, during the time of it being a failed state or the anarchy phase, which we always hear about when we talk about, you know, and Kapistan and, and anarchy with uh, status. And they always say, well, if you hate government so much, why don't you move to Somalia? Well, if you look at statistical measures of Somalia and how it compared to its peers in improvement in certain categories, they actually did fairly well during that stateless period. Now, it's not like uh, compared to the United States, of course, it's not going to be any better. And in fact, Musay says that himself. He says that uh, the only thing he can actually do in Somalia is be a fisherman, but the Western powers are uh, fishing the area and, and not leaving fish for the uh, Somalians. And so then they're left to this piracy stuff, which seems to be um, almost forced upon them by these essentially gang leaders who are uh, using violence to get them to go out and commit these acts of uh, aggression against uh, other people um, on these on these ships and holding them for ransom. Um, and Robert, you mentioned the Greek one. I guess Musay said that that was $6 million that they got for that. But of course, his cut was like very, very small because uh, he's a very low man on the totem pole. So anyway, I'm not sure exactly where I'm going uh, with all this, but I will find... Um, Tom Woods does put out a couple of emails uh, regarding Somalia. And so I'll put a link to that on our show notes page at lastnighter.com slash 111. That's 111. And uh, you guys can read about that and how it compares uh, rather favorably to other countries in that same region during that period of time when it was stateless or a failed state. Uh, so, uh, Robert, any any take from there or uh, where do you want to take us? Uh, just one moment, Daniel. Uh, sorry, I'm, ha- I'm having a computer issue. All right. I will redirect to uh, Jared. Um <laughs> <laughs> well, Robert is correcting his computer issue there. Uh, did I say anything that um, doesn't corroborate with your understanding? Not at all. Uh, so, I mean, I guess I kind of just want to put some some um, time frames to some of the things you were talking about. And so that, that period of quote-unquote anarchy in Somalia was really from about the mid-90s to right around the year 2000, maybe 2001. Um, and so what had happened is uh, after... after Somalia, like most, pretty much the whole rest of Africa, was colonialized by Europe, you know, the late 1800s through the mid-1900s. And Somalia got its independence in 1960, right around there. And from 1969 through 1990, they were ruled by a communist dictator named Siad Bar. Eventually, he was overthrown by what was called the United Somali Congress, which was, it wasn't anything that was grassroots out of Somalia. It was a Western-backed created in Rome, kind of imposed foreign government that overthrew Siad Bar. Um, and they never really had any legitimate power or any real power in Somalia. And so after Siad Bar was overthrown, you know, f- tribal warlords were fighting for a number of years. There was a lot of violence. The U.S. stuck their nose in, sent in about 30,000 U.S. troops to try and back this United Somali Congress. This is a period when uh, Black Hawk Down happened. Black Hawk Down happened in 1993. U.S. wisely, you know, turned tail and left in, in 1994. And then from 1994, uh, for for a couple of years, you know, maybe one or two years, there was you know that they returned to that warlord kind of battling amongst themselves, jockeying for power. Um, but then they kind of fought themselves out, and the old historical way of organizing Somali society kind of re-emerged, um, you know, with tribal uh, tribal law and elder control, and they had their own kind of governance and judicial system that was just based 
very, very locally based, um, very much a, uh, you know, what um, had been historically before, before colonialism. Uh, and so peace broke out during that time. Um, and it was very prosperous. There was really, there was no, really no central government to speak of. Uh, there was, you know, no taxes, no regulations. There was pretty much free trade uh, internationally. The ports of Mogadishu were wide open. Um, and so Somalia during that time became one of the first African countries to have cell phones, to have a whole cell phone system. Um, and their, their exports of, um, of livestock vastly increased. And like you, like Daniel, you were saying, the, the, the standard of living of the average Somali during that, that period of anarchy rose dramatically. And even compared to, you know, other uh, East African countries, did, did did better than those those other countries. You know, it did better than Kenya. It did better than Ethiopia. It did better than Eritrea, Uganda. Uh, you know, all these other types of countries, right in that same Horn of Africa, Eastern Africa area. Well, the U.S. didn't really uh, let that continue. They ended up creating what was called the transitional federal government. Again, made up of outsiders, made up of Somali diaspora, made up of. Um, uh, even even some of the old warlords who had lost power to the to the uh, you know the local tribal type system, uh, so they it was a, it was an Islamic type system. Um, so there was you know Sharia law and things like people hear Sharia law they don't really have a real understanding of what Sharia law is. It doesn't. I, don't, I think people just think hear that term and think of it as a boogeyman. But really, what it is is just strict Islamic type law where. Um, they deal with crime on a very serious basis. If somebody steals, you know, they cut off their hand or something like that. You know, you're not allowed to, uh, the, you know, in some places, you know, movies aren't allowed or cigarettes aren't allowed, things like that. But it's not, you know, trying to create some worldwide caliphate, you know, that people think it is. Anyways, um, so the U.S., the, the, the tribal or the, forgive me, the, the warlord people who had lost power to these tribal, this tribal system really kind of amplified the fact that it was an Islamic system and played that to the point of getting U.S. backing. So the U.S. ended up going in and backing a lot of these former warlords who had caused so much violence in the early 90s um, after the overthrow of Siad Bar. And um, so the, 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 in response to this, the tribal Islamic localized government systems uh, coalesced into what became known as the Union of Islamic Courts, and it became a more centralized in an effort to fight against, you know, this Western U.S.-backed transitional federal government. And they did so very effectively. The transitional federal government never really became anything of power. The UIC, the Union of Islamic Courts, really was the primary government at that time. Um, and so, in 2006, the U.S.-backed Ethiopia to invade Somalia, overthrow this Union of Islamic Courts, and basically make it so that the transitional national government no longer had that competing power to deal with. Uh, and ever since then, it's been pretty much just just chaos in Somalia, and and you know what people, uh, you know all of the the terrorism that's been going on, and the, you know the rise of Al Shabaab, really mostly as a as kind of a resistance um, group. Uh, and, you know, like I said earlier, it's, it's led to a lot of blowback in the countries that the U.S. backs to fight against Al-Shabaab. Um, you know, in Kenya, in Ethiopia, in Uganda, there's been a lot of 
terrorist type attacks. There was one in Nairobi uh, last year. There was one in uh, at a university in Garissa uh, a couple years before that, where hundreds of people were killed. Um, really, so hundreds of innocent people were killed. So it's really just a terrible situation that has developed there. Um, and you know, as you would imagine, in a in a in a society that's just racked by violence, economic growth and you know individual prosperity just basically doesn't exist. And so that's why they're driven to piracy. Um, and we, you know, we can get into the, how, how international countries and the U S in particular has tried to combat the piracy and how it was kind of more or less accurately depicted in the movie, how they don't do a very good job of doing that. Um, but, uh, that's kind of a brief, history of what's been going on in Somalia that led to this situation that, you know, led to the hijacking of all these ships and, and especially, you know, the one uh, um, referenced in this movie. Okay. All right. So I didn't, uh, I didn't think we we're going to get a whole history lecture. That's, this is <laughs> so, so that's bringing us basically up to the point of where the events occurred. Right. So that's exactly. kind of background on that. So there was a, a communist regime that was removed and then there was a, warlord infighting but there was also more i guess freedom uh, available for individual people so their prosperity did increase but then there was an additional imposition and it it basically screwed everything up again so um we can get into the movie but i'm curious what's happened in the intervening you know dozen years or so since these events uh has it improved much at all or is it still basically a shit show it's really it's 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 really bad uh the um, you know, because there's the there's the federal transition or transitional federal government, it's called, um, which you know tries to is has a lot of arms given to it by the U.S. Uh, and is backed by you know the local countries, Kenya, uh, Ethiopia, Uganda. Those are the three big ones, um, and those three countries are uh, financially backed by the U.S. You know to do that. Um, and, and there's also Al-Shabaab. And so the local people are kind of stuck in between a rock and a hard place, uh, basically two violent factions that are vi- vying for power. Uh, and it's, it's just not, it's not a good situation. And the U S you know, to this day has troops in Somalia. Uh, they've been dropping bombs via drones for, you know, more than a decade, uh, probably going on two decades now. Uh, Trump has really amped up the the drone strikes in Somalia in his in, you know in his three four years that he's been in power now, um, and it's just it's just really not good. And a lot of it, you know, there's another interesting thing is that part of uh, the reason why Al Shabaab goes into Ethiopia and goes into Kenya is that a big portion of you know we we all know that or at least the three of us know uh, that the uh, a lot of the borders that create that you know that define these countries don't really mean anything so a lot of northeastern kenya and southern ethiopia are ethnically somali so somalia looks at that at at that land and thinks of it as their own um and so uh you know the borders are very porous uh and so it's uh it, it you know in the in the 11 years or 12 years since you know the the events depicted in this movie it hasn't gotten any better if anything it's gotten worse is uh, somalia left over from the colonial area that was carved up all by all kinds of different european powers and they just kind of like wrote the the lines of the state where they kind of could control and that didn't really 
jive with the different uh, ethnic areas? Yeah, a hundred percent. Um, you know, like I said, uh, big parts of Kenya are ethnically Somali. Uh, you know, they speak Somali and same thing with Ethiopia and, uh, Britain, I don't know too much about Ethiopia, but Britain was the colonializing country in Kenya. Uh, Italy was in Somalia and they kind of just after World War One, they kind of just kind of drew lines on a map and said, OK, Italy, you can have this part. Britain, you get this part. Belgium, you get this part, etc. And it didn't really have anything to do with any kind of facts on the ground. It was really just um, foreign interests that that defined that, that dictated, you know, where those lines got drawn. Right. That reminds me of the Middle East. Yeah. It's very similar. Right. It's very similar. The Kurds and the Iraqis and Mm -hmm. and they all got. And how Kuwait is really, it was just created basically to be a place where, you know, that was, that was BP's oil was, was Kuwait. So they had to create a separate state so that BP could have control of the oil there. Um, And, uh, uh, the where I got a lot of that history from, you know, it's from my experience with with my wife and, and her friends. But, uh, you know, the Scott Horton show does a great job of covering this stuff, which I listen to all the time. Uh, there's a great book that I read called Getting Somalia Wrong, Faith, War and Hope in a Shattered State. It's by uh, a woman named Mary Harper. It's an excellent book. It goes through all of that history, um, even, you know, going further back prior to colonialism. Um, and it gets a lot into uh, Daniel, what you were talking about, about, uh, you know, the, the state of anarchy that existed for a, a few years and the extreme, just almost unprecedented economic growth that Somalia saw during that period. And then, uh, you know, how it was just all turned, turned upside down when, when the U.S. decided to, uh, to, to stick its nose in. Now, I have no doubt that all this intervention by these Western foreign powers is causing all kinds of havoc in the market and every other way. But Daniel, do you remember that movie that we did with Dr. Block where we were, it was all about um, foreign assistance or like uh, NGOs, right? And it talked a lot about how, was it, I forget which country in Africa they were talking about, but it was about how they didn't understand or they didn't respect the property rights so that we didn't know who owned property. So they couldn't get loans on that property. And so then they couldn't develop the land. And, you know, that whole chain of economic development was just hamstrung by those policies, I guess you want to call it. You remember that? I do. Yeah, that was Poverty Inc. And I want to say mm. that was uh, when we did a couple of years ago. I'll put a show notes page group together for that one, because uh, that was a really fun discussion. I, I think that we held ourselves uh, fairly, fairly well with Dr. Block. He's uh, he's a bit of a legend around well, these parts. He's a monster, but we do what we can. But uh, one of the key points that movie made clear was just how the the respect for property rights is essential to economic development. And I'm curious if that's the case also in this country, in Somalia, if, I mean, obviously, of course, the warlords and the warring factions, the intervention, all that, but it's also, if we don't know who owns what, and we can't, you know, take out loans on what to develop those property, then, you know, we're just also going to be very, very poor too. So I, I don't know, Jared, if you have any kind of expertise in that area, do you know the facts on the ground there? Um, well, I know that a big, almost, probably a majority of the Somali population is nomadic in nature. And so they kind of roam around and they have um, herds of cattle or herds of goats. Uh, and um, they just kind of almost wander. And I wouldn't say, you know, I don't, I'm not too, too knowledgeable on you know, that specific question you're asking. But it kind of leads into something else. You know, you mentioned the NGOs and these these aid organizations. And... These organizations 
you know, it's, they're bureaucratic in nature. So they have a vested interest in maintaining the, the status on the ground of, or, and, and, and especially uh, making the, making it, making it seem like there's, you know, especially in, during the period of anarchy when they were doing so well, they were making it seem like the, you know, the poverty is just so great that we have to go in there and, and help out. And, uh, you know, that, that has been a, a big part of the, the retarding of economic growth there is that, uh, you know, when, when free stuff is coming in, um, there's, there's very little, it's very difficult for local people to compete with free stuff. So if somebody is, you know, has a, has a chicken farm and, and one trying to sell eggs, but then, you know, USAID or whatever is coming out, coming in and giving away free eggs, uh, you know, they're going to go out of business real quick and then they really have no, nothing else to turn to. So that's been a, a big factor in perpetuating the, the state of poverty uh, in, in that whole region of the world. Sounds like you watched that movie. That was one of the examples of uh, a church that would uh, give eggs to uh, people in African countries. We had our issues with that movie. We don't entirely agree with all the, um, the economic arguments made in that movie, but um, I, I am sympathetic to, to um, getting a whole bunch of uh, goods dumped on and then having competing with that kind of stuff. It's, it's certainly difficult for an entrepreneur. Yeah, it'd be a destabilizing force and and there wouldn't be um, certainty that it wouldn't happen again, you know. So let's say that something like that does occur. And this is actually, you know, a little bit of reflection on our discussion uh, from a few few years ago. Because on the face of it, yeah, they're better off because they have more material goods. Their standard of living has improved for the you know general populace in that area, but those providers of those goods um, are in effect not as able to stay in business, like Jared was just saying. So they might, you know once the aid stops coming in for that particular good, be able to restart again. But what's to say that this flood of whatever their good that they're providing isn't going to resume again at some point in the future. So there's a bit of uncertainty there. And we see it even with, you know, coming into election time, even in the U.S., there's something called regime uncertainty, where companies will be reluctant to invest in certain things because they expect policies might be different depending on who wins the election. Well, just imagine the uncertainty surrounding an area like this, you know, there would be even more uncertainty and there's uncertainty even within property rights. Like why would you invest time, effort, money, or whatever capital improvement into something that you're not even sure you're going to be able to realize, you know, you're not even sure that you're going to be able to maintain it, maintain control of it. Uh, and that's one of the other sides of um, a lot of these countries will nationalize industries uh, and not to go to the wrong side of the world for, for more than a moment here. But I just read the other day that um, Venezuela is in talks of uh, denationalizing the oil industry because of how uh, badly they fucked that up. Finally, that's too little too late. I mean, maybe it'll eventually get back to being in a good place, but man, they, they fucked that up royally a long time ago. Good old Hugo Chavez. So I guess uh, what I'm kind of hearing here is that you guys might agree a little bit with Musay's argument that there's not a lot of opportunity. Maybe in America there is, but not in Somalia. Well, I'm not giving him a pass on aggressing against the Marist Alabama, but I am sympathetic with his plight. I, 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 I'd like to hear each of your opinion as well. I, if anybody's giving him a straight pass, I, I don't think any of us would just give us him a straight pass, right? No, but I, I, I think he's kind of maybe coerced into the situation. Like he doesn't have a whole lot of options and the gang, the warlord, elder group, whatever is controlling his area is sort of saying, hey, this is what you can do. Or we can shoot you. Yeah, I, uh, it's hard to it's hard to you know say 
you know, yeah, some, because the U.S. has, you know, screwed up this country so bad that, you know, they should just be able to go out and take whatever they want uh, violently. Um, but at the same time, you definitely sympathize with their situation where, you know, there, there's a brief scene in the movie that shows their village and it's like mud huts. And there's, you know, I don't I, the only vehicles I saw were the, the you know, the U.S. financed uh, Toyotas that got driven in um, by the, you know, the warlords who who send them out into to do the hijacking or to do the pirates piracy. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say, you know, there's no problem with what they did, but it's even harder to say that, uh, you know, their situation is their own fault because it's, it's really not at all. Yeah. Now I'm sort of stretching a little bit um, whether this is accurate or not, but I almost considered they were doing it almost as a gun to their head. And as, Manu would say, if you have a gun to your head, then you kind of remove the morality from the argument because they're being forced into doing these bad acts. Uh, so, Robert, assuming that... Well, but they're getting paid, though, right? Not very much. <laughs> well, clearly not very much. He's living in a mud hut. And he's, they are being and allowed to he's live. He's getting called skinny, so he's not, he doesn't even have food to eat. Right. I mean, I think it's crazy that in this society, skinny is an insult because, you know, they, they Actually, said... It, I, I have a comment to that. Um uh, and this is kind of dusting some stuff off, but I think I've seen some documentaries of maybe African areas that if you were fat, it was a good, good a good thing, an attractive thing for females because they knew that you were a provider, that you could afford to be fat. Well, my my buddy, the world traveler, he, he's been to Ethiopia many times and he met a man who was like, look at my wife. Isn't she so fat? And he's like, no, she looks fine. What do you mean? And he's like, no, no, really. Doesn't she look fat? Come on. And then he found out that, no, he was, that was a status symbol, that he could afford to feed her that much. It was a good sign. That's the case in Kenya, too, for sure. You know, fat people are uh, almost, um, uh, they're looked at as, as, as the rich person. And in many cases, they are. Uh, but, I mean, Daniel, I don't think you're stretching things at all to say that they had a gun to their head. Because, you know, when the, when the people showed up with guns and said, hey, go out and take a ship, they were like, we just got a ship last week. And they were like, I don't care. That was last week. Go out again. And, you know, they started firing the guns into the air. They, they did, you know, pretty much have a gun at their head uh, to go and, and uh, you know, try and get another ship. Um, and I don't know if I necessarily agree with Molyneux that that means morality goes out the window. Uh, but it's something that needs to be taken into consideration when, you know, when, when having that kind of discussion. Now we're yeah, talking I, about Muse, right? We're not necessarily talking about all the guys that were bribing Muse to get on the boats, although they're in a desperate situation as well. I'm not saying they're not, but they're not, they don't necessarily have a gun to their head, right? They're, they want to go on board to get a chance at some of the spoils. Yeah, that's true. Um, and it's, you know, it's a very ambiguous, uh, or difficult to, to kind of pin down situation. Um, but you know, uh, there were there were two captains, I guess, in this village, and it was I, I don't even know their names, Useg and the the other guy who ended up turning back uh, and getting knocked out by Usei. Um, but yeah, those I guess those were basically the two leaders, uh, and they would go out. It seemed like when when they were forced to, and then when they were forced to, other people wanted to go out with them. Uh, you know, like like you said, Robert, to get to get a, a portion of the spoils. Yeah, and it seemed like music was afraid to turn back with nothing, like that that there would be bad uh, repercussions of that. 
And then it seemed to, um, as the movie progressed, he seemed to turn into a bit of an idealist in that he was going to see this thing through, even though the odds were very much against him. And, and he actually believed, I guess, that they were going to fly the elders onto the ship to negotiate or something like that, which is another thing I wanted to get, get into is the whole negotiation tactic and whether you guys had any issues with basically the negotiator lying to them. Uh, I think, you know, as soon as violence is being perpetrated, you, you kind of not acting in good faith. So uh, you could be lied to no problem whatsoever. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I'm absolutely in hundred percent agreements. And I think we've discussed this in the past in different scenarios, but absolutely. I, I, I we knew the, the negotiate, the Navy negotiator was lying to them the whole time. And I was like, yeah, you say anything you can, anything you got to do to, to resolve the situation where you're, you know, ideally peacefully, but if not, where the the your your asset stays alive and they die. Yeah. Now, do you did you find it odd that I mean, this is events of 2009. They seem to have some pretty advanced tech going on in this thing. Like they could identify who these guys were based on some photos that were taken. That, that kind of blew me away. Uh, and I mean, I imagine that I mean, it's based on true events. I mean, do you think that they really had that or? Were these guys on like some kind of a database watch list kind of situation? Yeah, I wondered that too, because that was a serious moment in the film where if you're one of these pirate guys and they're like, holy shit, they know exactly who we are. Uh, who are we dealing with and how screwed are we? Uh, but I don't know if Jared, if you could shed some light on that, that'd be cool. Yeah, I don't really, I don't really know. Um, I mean, the, the U.S. military and the U.S. surveillance uh, uh, apparatus is more powerful than any of us know. So it's totally possible that even, you know, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, they would have been able to know that. I mean, when was the NSA created in 2003, 2002? So uh, um, they, they, they monitor all these phone calls and all these things. And uh, they, they know a lot more than we, than we think they know. Uh, but at the same time, you know, despite having all of this technology and despite having all of this power, uh, I think the movie also does an, a pretty good job of showing how bumbling they are and how, you know, the, they, they're really mostly just trying to save face as opposed to actually really trying to provide any security uh, to, to these, these international shipping companies. Yeah, they seemed like cops. They exactly. Like, exactly. Yeah. And that's kind of why I wasn't totally, I don't necessarily know how much I agree with you guys as to how cool I was with them lying uh, during the negotiation. Just, you know, if it was, you know, if, if this was a totally different scenario where shipping was totally privatized and the security of the shipping was totally privatized uh, and, and Somalia wasn't in this state of foreign intervention uh, and still piracy was happening and or, you know, occasionally happened and a, a boat was hijacked and, you know, some private uh, security vessel came to, to intervene. In that case, I could, you know, I might be cool with it. But, you know, just when you put it all together with the fact that, uh, you know, the, the ship wasn't allowed, you know, because of international maritime law, not allowed to have guns to protect themselves and uh, the U.S. Navy going in there, you know, since 2007, 2008 to protect those shipping waters from the rise of piracy uh, that really peaked around that time. Uh, and, you know, the, the lack of economic prospects and individual prosperity that's available to people in Somalia, when you put all that together, um, you know, I don't really have any sympathy for the U.S. Navy uh, and their position in this whole thing. Um, and so, 
Yeah, you know, I'm kind of losing my train of thought. Uh, but you know, that's that's my thoughts on the whole on that that whole part of the movie. All right, some contention. I, I'm going to disagree with you, Jared. Right, I think yeah. that once they've started this violence, I mean, you do whatever you can and whatever you need to say. And it's not as if this kind of um, service wouldn't be available in the free market. It just so happens that it's monopolized by uh, a state. And so that's why you have the Navy here. And I, you know, <laughs> sacrilegious as this sounds for an anarchist, I was impressed with what they did do to intervene in the situation. And I'm surprised that they would do that much intervention uh, in this particular instance for one man, for Captain Phillips. Because um, as we know, in the 20th century, uh, governments have killed um, hundreds of millions of their own people. So what's one more? What's one more guy? Uh, and it's not as if this was, um, at least in my recollection, like I heard about this in the news, but it didn't seem as if it was like this um, sensational uh, viral thing. You know, it wasn't like, oh, we're going to get bad press if we don't do this and extract this guy. I think it would have been swept under the rug very shortly thereafter the events had it turned out the other way. Um, so I was actually surprised at the outsized response. They had an aircraft carrier, a destroyer, um, or maybe two destroyers. I mean, a SEAL team, all this stuff to get one guy. And I mean, it was, it was pretty impressive, uh, at least as depicted in the film. And, and I credit a lot of that to um, uh, Greengrass, who did some of the Bourne movies. Uh, he knows how to depict this kind of action uh, moving chess pieces kind of thing with, with a lot of tension and a lot of, um, uh, excitement. Um, what's your take on that, Jared? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm going to push back a little bit. I'm not, I wasn't nearly as impressed with the U S Navy's response. I mean, it took forever for them to, I mean, the, uh, they, they called the U S maritime or whoever it was on the, some of the pirates first attempt to, to board or to, to, to take the ship. Um, and they were like, eh, yeah, um, you know, go into lockdown procedure, do what you got to do, follow the instructions. Uh, you'll be okay. They're probably just fishermen. Um, and then the, 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 the motor broke and it was a whole overnight, uh, probably at least a 12 hour or more period from that until when the second pirate attack happened. And it kind of reminded me of the movie Sully, uh, you know, the plane that went down in the Hudson River. Um, I remember watching that movie and thinking, you know, the, the plane went down. It took, it seemed like forever for any uh, Coast Guard or whatever to come and help the people who were floating in this, you know, freezing cold Hudson River. And I felt the same way watching this movie. Like, what is taking so long to get over there? You know, they could, they probably, they could have seemed to me, you know, the, the U.S. Navy is vast uh, and they are all over those waters and um, should have gotten there a lot quicker and, you know, could have, uh, stopped, you know, that, that second attempt, um, from even happening could have prevented the whole situation before it even happened. Yeah. You know, I'm surprised they didn't like scramble a, a fighter or something to like drop a bomb on the little skiff or something or uh, yeah, right. something like that. Um, and, and, uh, sorry to interrupt. Um, the, uh, when, after, after the takeover happened and they ended up in the, uh, the, the lifeboat, um, they kept saying they they reiterated this several times. Like Captain Phillips is not going to make it to uh, Somali land. Doesn't matter what happens, but he is not going to make it to Somali land. So even if it seemed like they were they were willing to t even take out Captain Phillips if it was necessary, just to make it so that these Somali pirates didn't weren't able to you know parade some American white man ship captain. Uh, you know, on the internet or on Facebook or on TV or whatnot. They just really didn't want to have that uh, 
headline. And so it seemed to me like they were willing, if necessary, to even take out Captain Phillips. Uh, and so I don't, I don't have any sympathy, or I'm not impressed at all with the 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 way the U.S. Navy handled the situation. I think a private security force would have done it way better. And again, to go back to Robert, what you said at the very beginning, if if all of this was privatized and there wasn't all these uh, international governments and uh, uh, national governments involved, they would have had guns. They would have been protecting themselves and it wouldn't have happened to begin with. Yeah, it seemed ridiculous that they were reliant upon these fire hoses, which I guess do a decent job against some guys in a skiff, but it seems like that's your only line of defense. And if one is defective, I mean, we had Captain Phillips shooting flares at the pirates to distract them long enough for this one guy to try and fix it. It just seemed like a shit show in terms of self-defense, which is just ridiculous. And you got to rely on this, these maritime agents, emergency numbers to call. And, they, and at first they called the U.S. maritime emergency and there's no answer. So then they call the U.K. one and they answer. And they're the ones that said, yeah, they're probably just fishermen. Don't worry about it. Follow your procedures, lockdown, blah, blah, blah. What kind of advice is that? It's like calling 911 and then just saying, oh, no, what you're doing is you're, you're just fine. You're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. It, it it's absolutely a shit service. Now, when the Navy gets involved and they've got like national headlines and they, you know, have their reputation on the line and they're like known as like these incredible killers, because that's basically their job, just like really good at killing stuff. I think when they do that, they're good at that. But in terms of a private force, and I think we see that with um who is it in Detroit? The private force that like Detroit de- threat management. Yeah, they who de- de-escalate situations and is really good at negotiating those kind of situations. I think they would have done a way better job for sure. And you're right, Jared. I think they're absolutely they were if if they had no other option, they were just gonna like drop a bomb on that lifeboat and just kill everybody. I I, I think nobody was gonna get the Somalia at the end, for sure. Yeah, and I'll I'll agree with you on that. So successful pushback, Jared. I, I think you're absolutely right that they they didn't want because I don't, I don't, I never saw Black Hawk down, but from what I understand, there were survivors from the helicopter that went down and they were parading through the streets. And and that had happened not too long before these events, like 10 or 15 years. So they didn't want to have another situation like that. So yeah, I think they were totally willing to just end the situation before it got to that point. Fortunately, that boat could only go like five nautical miles an hour or something like that, five knots an hour. So uh, it, it kind of bought them a bunch of, uh, a bunch of time. Um, and Robert, your, your point about the 911, I saw a meme uh, a while back. I'll, I'll try to post it on our show notes page, but um, it was uh, some woman calling 911 like, hey, there's an intruder in my house. Can you please someone send someone quickly who has more rights than I do? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and that plays very well into the events of this film because I'm not sure what the um, international agreement or, or what maritime law was preventing them from being armed. I think it's since changed because I've actually seen YouTube videos of uh, freighters like this having armed security shooting at skiffs. Uh, so, so something must have changed in that as a result of, of this type of thing happening. Um, but it is, it does go to show how when you're disarmed and, and you're stripped of the ability to defend yourself effectively, then you are reliant on the monopoly provider of that service in your general area. And they uh, generally don't get there uh, quick enough to actually prevent the crime from happening or the violence from being perpetrated. Uh, I mean, we saw how traumatized uh, Captain Phillips was at the end of this movie. And Tom Hanks, uh, I'll agree with you on that, Jared. He does an amazing performance, especially at the end uh, when he's being treated by the um, the corpsman. 
Uh, and and I guess uh, the actual um, captain of the ship was there next to the director during that scene. And the corpsman is an actual corpsman. And they just directed her to uh, perform a, a normal, you know, like examination of what would you do if someone came in like this? What would you do? And I guess the first take, she was awestruck because that's Tom Hanks over there, you know, big movie star. Um, so they had to have her shoot it again. Uh, but uh, the um, the captain of the ship would start crying because he was like, what what Hanks just did there is I've seen that that, that was like uh, 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 I you know a, a, an a example spot on yeah a spot yeah, on ex- ex- right yeah I read that too on the side of the the Amazon Prime uh, 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 that exact same um, scenario that you just went through of the how it took two takes and it was a real Navy corpsman who she it was her job you know they just told her to do what she would normally do and it's you know she was awestruck and all that and um yeah tom hanks is phenomenal uh he was nobody else could have done castaway the way he did and i think he was perfect uh to play captain phillips in this movie yeah i have to agree with that i i don't have any particular things to say other than to just cheer on uh he's probably one of i don't know my favorite actors of his generation he's just kind of like this everyman guy and we've kind of moved beyond the era of like Hollywood movie star carries a movie, you know, it's like Tom Hanks in, you know, it's like, no, it's just Captain Phillips and Tom Hanks is just merging into this role and he's doing such a great job. And that, that scene is just an excellent, it felt very real. It didn't feel like a dramatic, you know, action tense thriller movie. It just felt like a real scene after something that really happened. I, I, I have to agree with you guys. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about um, like, well, let's see. This is this oh, is really excellent content here, by the way, everyone. <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about that, Daniel. Go to patreon.com uh, and find us uh, last night at the last night.com slash Patreon. I uh, can ask about the security measures that they, that they did have on the boat and the a little bit of trickery that they that they had. Like they were, um, they told all the crew to hide down in the basement, they were or down in the engine room, and they were going to cut the power. And they knew that one of the guys uh, was barefoot, so like, all right, spray some glass on the ground. Uh, it seemed as if the the pirates didn't really pick up on that uh, very well. Like they kept saying, "No, no tricks, no, you know, don't mess with us." But then when they were being tricked, they were just like, "I mean, yeah, they were being violent and and threatening, but they didn't seem to act on like they caught on to these tricks." You know what I mean? Like there was like a bit of a disconnect. Like I don't know if there was like a language barrier or like some misunderstanding. But it seemed like Muse just he kept saying, "Don't try to trick me," but then when they would trick him, it would work, and he wouldn't really respond. I yeah, guess, as I'd expect, he, he seemed a little on the inexperienced side. Like he's kind of trusting these people to tell him the truth when he's asking them questions or to do what he's telling them to do. But um, I, overall, I didn't have that much of a problem with it. Other than, I mean, you are even though you've got them outgunned, you're still massively outnumbered. So you're relying on these people valuing their lives. You know, you know more than they value the property of the ship, right? Like they don't have a big investment in the ship. So, Hey, you go ahead and steal the ship. It's nothing to me. All I, you know, I miss out on a little bit of, I might get some hazard pay probably actually I'll get some, you know, whatever. I might get a bonus, honestly. But you know, that's why a lot of times there are, you know, when you go into a bank, banks are just like, don't fight the bank robber, just give him what he wants and we'll get the money back later. And you know, whatever it's all insured. And that's probably the same deal with the mayor of Alabama is it was all insured, but you know, at the same time, there's also, a point of pride and you're threatening our lives. And if we all act together, we can totally overwhelm three guys. I don't care how well armed they are. Yeah. I mean, they did catch Muse down in the engine room cause he was alone and they were able to distract him in the dark. And then I'm, I'm surprised they didn't 
utilized his sidearm and his and his uh, AK-47 more effectively in confronting the other three guys. I mean, they had the young guy who had got his feet all cut up and actually felt for him. And I know uh, in the film, Captain Phillips kind of made a connection with that guy and was very saddened when he ended up getting shot. But uh, I, I, I thought that that would have sort of evened the odds, right? Like now you guys are armed, you're, you're, you outnumber them. So I was, I was a bit surprised that uh, Captain Phillips, Tom Hanks' character, went into that uh, uh, abandoned the ship um, little dinghy thingy, majiggy. Yeah, it seemed a bit strange that he was just going to like, yeah, I'm going to show you how to do it and then expect you to follow through on this totally spur-of-the-moment deal that we can't enforce at all. I don't know. I mean, I thought their their trickery and you know with the glass and uh, hiding and turning off the power and all that kind of stuff kind of shows you know the the inventiveness and the resourcefulness uh, that people will re- are are capable of resorting to, uh, especially in a situation where they know that uh, they don't really have any outside security forces coming anytime soon. So they know, hey, we're 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 on this in this by ourselves we got to figure something out what can we do we know you know they kind of that's one of the lines that uh captain phillips says he says we know that we know the ship and they don't um so let's take advantage of that uh and as far as you know the 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 pirates falling for the tricks and not willing to you know react you know when they get uh you know when when they when when the tricks happen um you know i think they they knew that if they started killing people that there was going to be no way out for them at all uh and so i think that kind of uh led to part of their their lack of willingness to use violence in response to you know the fact that they were getting outsmarted on this ship yeah i wanted Um, to uh, ask about that because i was about to say you know in in some movies where there's like a robbery happening uh, and they threaten to shoot somebody but you know always the the person is trying to reason with them like hey it's just robbery at this point if you kill someone, then it's going to be a real problem. I thought that that would not have been a factor for these guys because of the circumstances, right? It's international waters, they're pirates, they're uh, living in these, you know, dirt huts. And and so I, I would have thought that killing some one or some of the crew would have established their dominance and control the situation and that they would have more, been more than willing to do it. But it sounds like uh, you're saying that they actually would have had bigger repercussions if they had done that. Um, and I guess I missed that because it seems like they're already in a situation where the shit's going down. I mean, it's it's pretty bad, no matter what level of, you know, if they kill people or not, based on what they've done. Now, you were saying earlier that um, this area of the world, Somalia, is primarily Muslim, right? So we can assume that these guys are probably practicing Muslims, maybe? Yeah. It's not, it's not explained in the film, but would that factor into it at all? Like, I think hey, that's we're a killing fair a bunch assumption. Of I or. I don't know if that would factor into it. I think more what would what would more factor into it is the fact that, you know, even though they have really difficult lives and extreme poverty, they still have families, they still have loved ones, they still have friends, children, cousins, aunts and uncles, parents uh, that they want to get back to. Um, and so, you know, that aspect of humanity doesn't leave a people, you know, just because they're in tough situations. If anything, it increases you know those those type of human relationships um and so as desperate as they are they're still human and they still have love for the people that they you know that that are close to them um even if you know even if they're sharing a a one room mud hut with you know uh with their family or or whoever um and so i don't i mean i think i don't know how much 
their 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 Muslim religion would come into you know if that would be a greater than just you know normal human uh, uh, sympathies. Um, that yeah, was they didn't that, strike me as like religious fanatic type. Yeah, I agree. And, and a lot of these more extremist people who are willing to use violence, um, they they preach uh, Islam and whatnot, but they definitely don't practice it. Uh, you know, in their personal life, you know, it's kind of a, a very, you know, with ISIS and Al Qaeda and those type of organizations, they use Islam as a recruiting tool. But then at the same time, they're, you know, doing cocaine and having orgies with prostitutes and things like that. So uh, it's, it's more of, it's more of, it's more of a propaganda thing for, for these type of violent organizations. Um, and, and, you know, to me, you know, just, you know, see, I've been to places where, you know, they live in, you know, mud houses and things like that. And the, the sense of community is almost overwhelming. Like the, the, like there's, there's, there's a certain kind of joy that exists among people living in those kind of situation that is almost, uh, it's almost indescribable. Um, you know, they don't really have anything, but they have each other. Uh, and that's a really powerful thing. Um, and would be a reason why these guys wouldn't want to cross that line from theft into murder, uh, because they're, they're hoping they're keeping that hope in the back of their minds that they're going to see their loved ones again. Now, do you think had they murdered, then they would have feared like the naval response or were they more concerned about like the crew realizing that now that people have been murdered, they are really in a fight for their lives. And so they might uh, be more, you know, violently in defending themselves versus, you know, like basically being hostages and, and thinking if they just sit quiet, they'll get through this. I think it's the former for sure. I think uh, they're, they, you know, they're out in the middle of the ocean, you know, probably at least hundreds of miles off of the coast. And uh, if they started killing people, they weren't going to get back before the Navy showed up. Uh, and I, you know, they, these are experienced pirates and piracy has been going on forever and for many years, at least in that part of the world. So there's probably been stories of things going bad and, you know, the Navy showing up and uh, you know, people not making it out alive. So I think they would be more afraid of, you know, the, the U S monolith than, uh, you know, 40 unarmed guys. And they'll need the cooperation of that crew to help them seize the ship. Right. I mean, they don't have the expertise required to necessarily operate the whole thing. <laughs> that was kind of a funny scene when he first, when he first says, I'm the captain now. And then captain Phillips is like, the ship's broken. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's broke. And then he starts like banging on the control. So like, yeah, he didn't know what he was doing. He, they weren't going to be able to steer that. Oh, I think he hung. Uh oh, he's hanging himself. Oh, there, there he is. is. He's back. So they weren't going to be hanging us up. They weren't going to be able to. Bang. Oh, sorry. They uh, they they weren't going to be able to by themselves uh, fix whatever was wrong with the ship. Uh, they you know what you said, Robert was one hundred percent right. They were going to rely on the crew to to get that ship back to where it needed to go. Okay. All right. Yeah. They needed that cooperation for sure. They didn't want to start killing people and start any kind of a massive fight where you're killing like the key engineer guy that knows what how to work this thing and just have this ship be dead in the water and then it's no good to anybody, especially not. The and pirate. then you're definitely going to get caught by the Navy. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. they did. They also, their skiff is who knows where. If they yep. swim back to that thing, they're not going to do that. They jump in the lifeboat and then that thing's moving barely at all. So, yeah, they're easily getting caught. Well, they didn't even know how to operate that thing. Right. So, so. yeah. Now, uh, 
we're going to have to wrap this up because we're already actually getting a little bit long. And I know we've barely touched on a lot of the topics that you said you wanted to talk about both of you guys, but um, I'm, I'm curious. I wonder if the ships uh, have been outfitted any differently since these events, because uh, when the engineer had to sneak up onto the deck and try to avoid the, uh, the guy who is, you know, up at the top, looking down, um, protecting the, that area of the deck to actually go get to the generator and cut the power. I wonder if that has since been like more centralized or more easily uh, controlled to uh, have a, another defensive measure against piracy of, of this nature. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. All I know is that I don't care what the law says. I'm going to be personally armed. If I'm sailing through pirate infested waters, I'm not going to rely on some kind of Kevin McAllister defense scheme with <laughs> paint cans and broken glass and marbles and shit. Fuck that. Ship the container alone. <laughs> Kevin. All right. Well, uh, you guys have any uh, final notes before we get into the summary and review and scoring portion of the show? Uh, I had one one more thing, uh, kind of more of on a, a positive note. Uh, you know, most of what we've been talking about is is violence and you know U.S. Uh, militarism and and colonialism and poverty and all that kind of stuff. But the brief scene uh, where Captain Phillips first boards the ship. Um, and it's showing, you know, all those containers getting, uh, getting onboarded. Just the, it's just, it really is amazing to me looking at that technology and how far, you know, humanity has come um, in terms of just what we're able to accomplish. Uh, and, you know, that, that ship was huge and it probably gets loaded and unloaded in a matter of, you know, several hours, maybe, maybe a day at most. Uh, and, uh, you know, imagine, so I, I guess that just kind of speaks to the the powers of of the market, and um, you know, imagine if that uh, you know technical technological advancements hadn't happened, and trying to ship all of the, the these type of goods around the world, relying on on manual labor or you know forklifts or something like that. But uh, I was really I'm I'm always impressed with with what mankind has achieved through voluntary uh, and economic um, means. So that was, that was the last thing that I kind of wanted to point out on a more positive note. Yeah. And just yeah. to jump off on that, I was impressed with um, that that much goods were being transported between Oman and was it Kenya they were going to? Like it was yeah. throwing the Middle East to somewhere in, in uh, Africa. It wasn't like going to Europe or Japan or the U S you know? So it seemed like, that's a lot of goods, you know, trans commerce going on here. Yeah. That's pretty impressive uh, for a fairly commie infested area. So anyway, um, Robert, any final notes from you? Or do you want to kick us off with the summary review? No final notes. I think it's been a great discussion. So I'm glad we did this one. Thank you, Jared Wall, for coming on and doing this, providing some some history into the uh, the region. We definitely wouldn't have known that or brought any kind of level of expertise to that. So Appreciate that big time. Um, the movie itself, though, I, I thought was a fantastic film. I, it reminded me of The Last Jedi, like I said, and this was just so much better done. I mean, I know The Last Jedi was a space scene chase where, like, they're trying to make him run out of space gas. This movie, it wasn't a resource management, but it was it was a tense, like, David versus Goliath, but Goliath is blind and doesn't have any arms. And it was like this little, these little guys that could, and they come up and they take out these this whole ship. Like how vulnerable this whole ship is. This giant ship with millions and millions and millions of dollars in cargo. 
and they're relying on some law and some vague promise by the U.S. Navy that is supposedly patrolling the area to supposedly react in time and get to wherever any kind of problems are before anything bad happens. Uh, ridiculous, ridiculous idea. It seems like it's it's it reminds me of you know, the Democrats or basically any politicians that are trying to promote like anti-gun legislation where they're just like, well, you just call 911 or you just call the cops. And like Molyneux says, they're, they're crime historians. They might get there in time, but they're best at coming in after something bad has happened and trying to figure out and piece together what happened. Like, oh, well, the guy killed her right here and maybe we'll try and find the guy, but, but chances are we won't. And if the, the, this could have ended very, very differently where the, the pirates could have gotten the ship and gotten back to wherever, whatever port they were going to take it to. And, uh, you know, the crew might have all been ransomed off or they could have all been killed. We don't know. I don't know what necessarily they do. I mean, there's more money in the crew being, you know, ransomed, certainly. I'm sure it's, they're economically incentivized to keep them all alive. But if the shit goes down, I'm sure that they wouldn't hesitate to just kill them all either. So, um but yeah, the movie itself, fantastic. I really enjoyed it. Uh, great tension, really good chase music. Really good chase music that really got me into it. Like that, that drum beat, that uplifting drum beat that's just driving. Acting was fantastic. Directing by Greengrass uh, from the Bourne movies. You can tell he really knows what he's doing. And uh, I don't know why this movie didn't make more money um, other than that people just, maybe they just go to Marvel movies these days. I don't know if they go to, maybe they don't go to movies like this, but I guess this is also what, like seven years old now, eight years old now, but. Yeah, excellent. Um, eight, eight point uh, four. Great movie. Wow, eight point four. Well, that's uh, that's a pretty good score, I'd, I'd say. And so you're basically uh, saying this is a good one to check out. You highly recommend it. Uh, I'm going to echo a lot of your same sentiments. I think Tom Hanks was phenomenal in this, as were the uh, Somalian uh, characters, uh, Muse especially. Uh, he did win the Academy Award. Not that I uh, give too much credit to that, um, but we just did have the Academy Awards. Uh, just the other day, and um, Parasite won, which I haven't yet watched, but I do have it. And I know, Robert, you watched um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and, and you were saying that's really good. I also really enjoyed Joker. We did an episode on that a while ago. But we're talking about Captain Phillips tonight, which uh, was a really good movie, and I'm glad we got to talk about some of the history behind Somalia. So thank you for bringing that, Jared. That was actually very helpful. I think it uh, can be oftentimes confusing, uh, all the events that are going on over there. And I think listening to Scott Horton, or uh, we have a buddy uh, who runs Foreign Policy Focus, uh, who does a daily podcast. He he gets into all the Middle East stuff, um, and uh, it's really good. Uh, but this movie, tightly paced, uh, a lot of action, a lot of tension, a lot of uh, impending, like, doom, like, oh, this is going to happen. Like, especially when they kept saying, like, keep uh, increasing the um, RPMs on the on the motor and take all the limits off. I thought that that was leading to the next time they needed to use as much full power as they could, that was going to blow the engine and leave them dead in the water. That was kind of what I was expecting. And then they, they didn't do that. So it kind of teased a little bit, you know, kind of lead you in misdirection. So overall, well, well paced, well acted, well directed. Uh, this was a fun movie and I'm going to give it an eight. So Jared, uh, over to you. Um, yeah. Again, uh, thanks for having me. It was really a lot of fun talking to you guys. I hope my kind of uh, um, soliloquy at the beginning, kind of going through the, the history of Somalia was, uh, at least somewhat easy to follow. Um, uh, it's, it's something that's uh, been interesting to me for a long time. Um, but anyway, yeah, I really liked the movie uh, and loved Tom Hanks in it, loved the music, loved the pacing of it. Uh, you know, they really did a good job kind of pulling out the drama 
Um, I do kind of want to use my last couple of seconds here to, to just make one more final point, if I may. And that's, you know, you mentioned how many Somalis are here in the U.S., especially in, in Minneapolis and in Minnesota. Uh, and a lot, you know, there, there's there's a lot of credible evidence that a lot of these, you know, especially the young men Somalis have gone back to Somalia to either join Al-Shabaab or join the resistance against uh, you know, U.S. and foreign intervention into their country, and I'm, uh, I kind of am a little bit afraid that they might realize that hey, we don't have to go back to Somalia to fight against you know the U.S. We can do it right here in the U.S. And uh, you know, I'm afraid that if the U.S. keeps up their meddling in this part of the world, that we're just going to get more and more blowback. You know, uh, uh, like what happened on 9/11, um, or, or worse, or or, or just. Uh, a series of um, just tragedies that might happen because people are so angry about what they we're doing to their country. So I just kind of want to put it out there that more people need to, uh, you know, I, I agree with Murray Rothbard and Ron Paul that I think foreign policy is kind of the, one of the major keys to this whole libertarian thing. Um, and I think if more people realize the danger that U.S. militarism is putting you know, us here at home in, uh, I hope more people would, you know, be more vocally against that stuff. But again, the movie was really great. Um, I was very annoyed with the, the Navy response at the end of the movie. And I think that might've jaded me on the movie more as a whole. Um, but, uh, you know, the acting was great. Uh, the, uh, it was a really well done movie. So, you know, my, my, what I disliked of the movie was really more there, there in my mind, the accurate portrayal of the, uh, the, the, the ineptitude, um, of, of us Navy and, and international war waters and the, the, the monopolized security forces that exist, uh, because of that. So, um, in spite of that, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be right there with you guys. I'll give the movie an eight. All right. Well, well done. Well done, everyone. This was uh, a great episode. And you guys can hear me, right? I can hear you, Daniel. Okay. It sounds weird on my end. But uh, thank you guys for, for joining us for this one. This has been episode 111 of the show. You can find the show at smartlastnighters.com slash 111. Uh, you can also find it at the Launchpad Media. And you can find us over at lastnighters.com slash Patreon and send us a couple of dollars our way, just like Jared did a few weeks ago. You can find his work over at breakingliberty.com. And uh, you can read up on his analysis of the Breaking Bad series from a libertarian perspective. Also, do check out his prior appearances on our show, talking about El Camino, the Breaking Bad movie, and Gold, the Matthew McConaughey movie, uh, just a few short weeks ago. This has been our Valentine's Day episode for this year, 2020. And we'll be back next week with Batman 1989, the Tim Burton film starring Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson. Wow. And our man from Adelaide, Shaheen, the DCEU mm. extravaganza guy is going to be joining us once again uh, for that one. So it should be uh, a lot of fun. Same bad time, same bad channel next week uh, coming up on Last Nighters. So uh, we do appreciate you, our audience, and do give us uh, a like and a subscribe on the old YouTube and the Facebook pages. Uh, we can't push the Patreon hard enough, so do that again as well. Uh, Join the Patreon. <laughs> Any anything else uh, you can advise our audience before we get into some Kathleen Turner Overdrive, which we revealed the uh, story behind that last week, talking about high fidelity. You talking to me, Daniel? Yeah, yeah. What are the, some of the other oh. things people can do to uh, say? Well, you could buy a shirt on Trumpster.com, or you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You could uh, 
join us in our Facebook group, uh, the actual Anarchy Cadre, uh, an island of sanity in a world of Facebook craziness or something like that is what it's called. I don't know whatever you called it, Daniel. I'm going to add clown world uh, somewhere in the name at some point. You probably should. You probably should, Daniel. It's already a world of craziness out there. So yeah, thank you all for listening. It's been a lot of fun. And come back next week for Batman 89, where our favorite Cape Crusader uh, kills a whole lot of people. Is he justified in doing so? We'll find out. No, 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 Batman next week. All right. Thank you, Jared. And hopefully you can stick around for Kathleen Turner Overdrive coming up right after these messages. All right, and we'll continue the transmission for a bit longer on the Actual Anarchy Podcast. Jared, sorry, I cut you off there. I hit the button right as you were speaking, and uh, once you do that, there's no going back. So apologies. It's all good. I was just saying thanks for having me. Well, you're, you're, thank you for, for being willing to come on a show such as this. With What's the Groucho Marx quote? I would never want to be a member of a club to be willing to have me as a member. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Something like that. Uh, so my bonus question for, for this portion of the show, uh, I'll direct this to Robert. Um, why don't you move to Somalia? If you hate government so much, why don't you move to Somalia? Well, why do we have to leave? Uh, that's never that's never uh, really quite made sense to me. I mean, I understand. I, I get that feeling sometimes when people complain like endlessly. It's like, well, if you really don't like it that much, you can leave. And it's true, but you're under no obligation to do so. You own your property. And just because you've been taken over by a bunch of armed thugs doesn't mean they're legitimate in any way. So, you know, and, and it's not necessarily like, Somalia is this great place for all the reasons that we talked about in this episode. Um, not to say yeah, it's, it's not the like, worst place in the world either. It's not like they got to that after an intellectual revolution of being respected uh, or anything like that. So it's not like the anarchy that we would promote, which would right. be an education-based intellectual enlightenment, a new enlightenment, if you will. Indeed. But anarchy itself has been so slanderized. I mean, it's it's still used today all the time whenever you a situation is described as completely lawless. It's a synonym for anarchy. And it yeah. always makes me roll my eyes and just yeah. knowing that the 99% of the people are just going to go. Yep. Yeah. That sounds terrible. Yeah, indeed. Uh, any final comments from you, Jared, before we actually do get in the caffeine turnover drive? No, I mean, uh, I wouldn't really want to live in Somalia either. Although uh, that five year period of anarchy uh, was pretty cool. Um, there was a, a Tom Woods episode. Uh, I forget the name of the guy, but it was about Somalia. And there was a whole long, probably 20 page like research paper that some, some professor had done about the anarchy period in Somalia. And he just went through like, like statistics and anecdotes and, uh, and, and a whole bunch of research that he had done into that period. And it's just amazing. Uh, the, the, the rise and levels of prosperity that, that happened during that period. Um, and, uh, you know, it was all because there were, there were no regulations, there were no taxes, there was free trade, and it was just amazing what was able to happen. It was still a third world country. It was still extremely poor, um, but it was rising rapidly during that time. Uh, so it's really a good case study of what can happen when government gets out of the way and just lets people uh, um, interact with each other economically and voluntarily.
Yeah, indeed. And we will uh, be sure to find that episode as well as the research paper and put it on our show notes page. And this, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but this is episode 168 of the Actual Anarchy uh, show. So actualanarchy.com slash 168 will be the show notes page and more uh, links to a lot of the stuff that we talked about, as well as Jared's work and prior appearances. Uh, and be back next week, same bat time, same bat channel for some more maximum freedom, everyone. So peace out. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do. days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com.